The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Clean Energy Conference, happening April 1st through 2nd, 2022. This virtual, global, public event will focus on renewables integration and grid modernization for a clean energy future. Network with leading clean energy experts while utilizing and deepening knowledge of clean energy justice, finance, technology, policy, and careers. To learn more and register for this event, visit yalecleanenergy.info backslash conference. Far more efficient, far cleaner, far more democratic, Community Solar is going to play a key role as a central hub alongside other distributed technologies. This is The Interchange, Recharged. I'm David Van Miller, your host. Welcome. More than 75% of American households do not have access to solar power. The benefits of solar as an energy source are well known. In fact, we touched on the power of solar in episode 215 of the podcast, and I'd recommend going back to listen to that one after this. So why are we not seeing widespread solar adoption in the US? The problem is twofold. Either consumers do not own their own home, or the roofs are unable to host a solar system. A community solar project involves local households, businesses, and community organizations signing up to receive energy from a certain number of panels. They can be purchased upfront, or participants can opt for a pay-as-you-go system. Members receive a credit on their bills based on the amount of energy produced by the panels. It makes environmental and economic sense, and the Department of Energy has a goal to get community solar powering 5 million homes by 2025. On the podcast today, we explore how community solar works, why it's a good idea, and how it can continue to grow. We've got a wealth of talent on the show today. Three expert guests joining us for a panel discussion on community solar. First up, we have Casey Peters, Director of Industry Relationships at Pivot Energy. Welcome, Casey. Hi, happy to be here. We also have Jeff Kramer, CEO and President of CCSA, the Coalition for Community Solar Access. Jeff, great to have you here. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. And finally, we're joined by Rachel Goldstein, solar analyst in the Power Renewables team at Wood McKenzie. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. Great to have you all here and looking forward to the discussion. Jeff, why don't you kick us off by giving us a little introduction to community solar, the history and the work that the CCSA does? Sure. Uh, happy to. So community solar has been around for over a decade now. Uh, it was outgrowth of uh, rooftop solar. And in the 2000s, there was a significant uptick in the growth of rooftop and CNI solar, where customers would put solar on their roof and receive credits on their electricity bill for the electricity generated from their roofs or from those buildings. And community solar presented an option for the largely a majority of residential customers, businesses, other public institutions that couldn't access solar, whether they didn't own their home, they rented, they didn't have a suitable roof, uh, or other factors. So it's actually started with small co-ops in the West where customers banded together and said, hey, we want to put together a facility ourselves and generate electricity and then receive the benefits on our electricity bills. So it started largely as a pilot in, in a number of rural co-ops by customers themselves and then grew into statewide programs in Minnesota and Colorado uh, starting in 2010 to 2012 and 2013 uh, where the state passed legislation to create programs where 
third parties or developers, uh, solar companies could come build projects and then offer subscriptions to customers, whether they be residential customers, CNI customers, a university, a town, say all participating in the same project. And so the project exists adjacent to the community somewhere on the distribution system. It generates electricity that flows into the distribution system. And then each customer that subscribes to that project receives credits on their electricity bill for their portion of the project. And so, you know, to skip over a a lot of detail here at, at a high level, community solar has moved from smaller projects, utility by utility, or either community by community to statewide and over 20 states across the country. And you have programs where it's as easy as signing up for a Netflix subscription. The first projects were complicated. Financiers weren't as comfortable with the uh, with the concept. And so customers would have to take out $10,000, $20,000 loans and buy portions of those projects. Now, it's as simple as going on Netflix and buying a subscription and receiving your electricity credits either on your electricity bill or through a third-party provider. So it's it's seen incredible growth and incredible innovation uh, over the past decade or so. Good. And I know that uh, there's a lot going on with community solar, a lot of initiatives uh, on the policy and development side. Um, Casey, I'll direct this one to you. Uh, how do you see community solar fitting in with the broader energy transition discussion? And what do you see it looking like going forward? Yeah. I think there's really two ways that community solar fits into our energy transition. Um, The first being access to renewable energy. I think we've talked for years about solar being available to just wealthy or homeowners or businesses that have excellent credit. And that isn't the majority of people, right? 50% of people live in homes that do not qualify for a rooftop installation, whether that be because they're in an apartment or because they're in a house that is uh, just too shady or not situated south. And community solar really opens up that access. And that's going to be really, really important if we have really big energy goals and we want to increase that access. So right now, if we're just looking at rooftop solar, we've already, you know, counted out half of the population. And so community solar really allows us to get to that real full access to solar for for everyone. And so I think that's the first piece is really that access and availability for, for residents everywhere. The second piece, I think, is scaling distributed assets. So majority of distributed assets today fall into one of two categories, residential installations or CNI installations. And residential installations are, you know, two to maybe 10 kW. Uh, and those are growing across the country and that's fantastic. But the portion of the installations that are CNI have really been stagnant over the last decade. If you look at all of the CIA reports, you'll see this big growth in residential, this huge growth in utility, and then the same bar over and over and over again in CNI. And it's partially because of the challenges behind financing and a lot of those soft costs that go into that CNI space. So we haven't really been able to get the benefits of a large installation for a residential, right, to be able to decrease those costs for for installing the asset itself. Um, So that's been a challenge there. And then 
on a commercial, you might be able to do a 500 kW to 2 megawatt on site, but the ability to underwrite any of those projects has just been really making the entire industry just it's stunting that growth. And so community solar fits in and this really magical way that we get really big projects, big for the distributed side, not to the utility scale, but we get these two to maybe 10 megawatt size projects on the distributed system, which is going to be really important for grid growth, resiliency, and cost reductions. And we're uh, coming up with a more sophisticated and mature market for underwriting these assets. So we're solving that problem that has been the traditional plague of the CNI space. Um, So we're kind of getting this best of both worlds piece. And that is going to be key to getting a lot of solar deployed really quickly. And that's why, honestly, we're seeing that community solar is the fastest growing of all of the segments um, of solar out there. Right. I mean, with some ambitious goals, I know that the Department of Energy has a goal of 5 million homes powered by community solar by 2025, which I'm understanding would take about 20 gigawatts uh, of power generation capacity at that point. Whereas at the end of 21, we had, I believe, four gigawatts with some more growth projected. Uh, Rachel, how do you see the growth prospects for community solar, uh, you know, particularly over the next five years with the goals that the DOE had set? Yes. So um, the DOE recently announced, as you mentioned, a goal of reaching an equivalent of 5 million homes powered by community solar by 2025. And I will say that would involve a significant expansion of community solar over the next couple of years. Um, We're looking around something between 20 and 30 gigawatts in order to meet that goal. Um, And for context, we do have about four gigawatts of community solar today. By our forecasts, we are expecting around 8 gigawatts of community solar by 2025. I think it's an incredible signal that the federal government is interested in building out community solar, um, but goals like this are going to require significant muscle. The DOE is going to have to address challenges around interconnection, limited state-level programs, and is also going to have to be very involved in robust interagency cooperation. And to speak a little bit more to kind of the challenges that community solar is facing as well as its prospects today, um, we, like I said, we have around four gigawatts of community solar. There are many states that already have community solar programs in place. And community solar is unique in that it really does require state level programs in order to thrive. It's an extremely policy driven segment of the solar market in general. It's just a, a much more unique structure than what we're historically dealing with. Part of the reason that it is so policy driven is that crediting process. So traditional net metering programs have been you know, controversial around the rest of the country, but it's fairly easy to understand that the electrons that are on that are produced from your roof go into your your house or into your building right away. Right. And it's easy to think that, yes, you're producing that energy and even with the value of what that net crediting is being up for debate, we at least know that you're powering your house. But for community solar, we have to have a mechanism that the utilities must follow in order to decide where and how those credits are allocated and what the cost of those credits would be. And so 
that is why it's much more policy focused because we need the utilities to understand how and where and when to credit those those subscribers' bills. So sorry, Rachel, I just wanted to point that no out. No problem. Yes, that's great context. Um, definitely important to understand why community solar operates under such a unique landscape and why we need programs in order to make them happen. Um, so that said, there are about a dozen states that do have community solar programs in place now. Those leaders include Minnesota, which has kind of been the historical leader, Massachusetts and New York. New York is really going to be a bright spot over the next couple of years. And there are also several states that have legislation for new community solar programs. And we're going to see how that plays out over the next year. Some are already in the rulemaking process and some have just, you know, introduced bills. And I would say while we're anticipating about eight gigawatts of community solar over the next few years on the timeline that DOE is looking at, there is significant upside if those programs do play out. And we'll obviously be adjusting our forecasts as that all comes to fruition. But that does still mean that the DOE is going to have to put a lot of muscle behind these goals. The other thing I definitely want to touch on is the interconnection problems that community solar is facing today. Um, I really think this is the main hindrance to the community solar market. Once you have those programs in place, there's a ton of opportunity. Developers are extremely excited about community solar, but at the same time, community solar fills a very interesting niche on the grid where you're filling in these, these one to five megawatt or so projects on the distribution end, which is maybe just not historically where the grid is used to receiving generation. And in these locations on the U.S. electricity grid, this can cause some challenges for technical specifications and what the grid can actually handle. So then you see that grid upgrades are often needed. You know, we should be upgrading our grid. There's a lot of positive ramifications for that to begin with. But often it does fall on the developer to uh, fund and finance those upgrades. And this is where we start to see some questions around how can we actually make these projects pencil? How can they be economic? Today, we're seeing these grid upgrade costs really impacting projects in Maine and Massachusetts. And I, I think that that is a trend that's likely to continue across lots of different states that have these community solar programs. So in order for this segment to thrive, as I'm sure we all really want it to, there's going to have to be a lot of considerations made to ensure that they can interconnect into our grid in the locations that they're sited at, which is typically closer to the community that they serve than maybe a large utility scale project might. So Rachel, on the states where we've seen growth in community solar, and I know that there's some other states that have stalled a little bit, uh, what are what is the environment like in those successful states? Is it an easier interconnection issue or a less costly one? Is it more favorable policymaking? What would you say are kind of the critical components in the states that have really thrived uh, with these projects? Yes, I think it, it. a lot of it comes down to policy and the kind of funding that the state is willing to allocate to community solar. Um, New York, for example, has really seen an explosion of community solar. Just this last year, they installed about half of all the community solar that came online in 2021. Um, and I can really attribute a lot of that to the state level programs and, and financing. They have um, a number of ways to incentivize these projects and make sure that they are economic and that they are attractive to developers. There's also a lot of questions around siting. Um, you have to be able to site your projects in, a, in an area that is you know, considered local enough that it can be 
delivered to the subscribers. And that really varies state by state. Some citing restrictions are a bit tenuous for developers and and can be very challenging to meet. We're seeing that in Minnesota and Maryland, the siting and zoning challenges that are being faced are actually really causing the community solar markets in those states to to wane a bit. Whereas states with a bit more flexibility around siting, you see a lot more success. Yeah. So Jeff, I mean, obviously to meet some of these targets that are out there, we need a number of new states adopting these types of developments. What do you think needs to be done from a policy standpoint, I guess, both at the federal level as well as the state level? And I know there's a lot of complexities around it in terms of interagency cooperation, but what would you like to see happen to further the growth? Sure. And it might be helpful to to take a step back for a second. Uh, you, you mentioned the DOE goal. I know it's been referenced a bit here and, you know, put some of this potential growth into context. Um, so, you know, Rachel and Wood McKenzie have outlined uh, a pipeline of, say, four or five gigawatts uh, by by 2025. And, and, and to be clear, that capacity is capacity that is already built into existing program growth. So that means bill has been passed, regulations have been promulgated, and there is a queue of projects uh, ready to be built. So in, in many ways, we see that pipeline and that forecast as a conservative, which it should be, forecast of, of, of what's coming online. If you're to zoom back and you take a look at, you know, obviously, as we, we deploy new projects on, on the grid, technology cycles in the electricity sector are long. And we did some modeling over the past year or so that looked at what does the electricity grid need by 2030, by 2050 to achieve lowest cost, assuming most reliable, safe, and lowest cost for the system, but also meeting some other uh, extraneous goals like policy goals around, say, state-level RPSs and potentially even modeling in uh, President Biden's uh, climate agenda. And what we found is we found a range between about 100 and 160 gigawatts of distributed solar that's going to be needed by 2030 alone to meet those. And right now we're somewhere around 40 gigawatts. So we're going to need a significant uptake. And if you assume community solar, say, takes a third of that, you're going to need at least 20 gigawatts in the next few years, and you're going to need 30 to 40 gigawatts by by 2030. And and importantly, that's to achieve a lowest cost system. So to go back to your (laughs) original question saying, well, what would you like to see? I'd, I'd love to see the states that are that are looking at a New York deploying gigawatts of community solar, serving tens of thousands, a hundred thousands of customers, deploying resilient, clean, local electricity resources to do the same thing. So a, a Pennsylvania, for example, a Wisconsin, a Michigan, an Arizona, a California, they have a significant amount of capacity that they can deploy cost effectively and customers are clamoring um, for access to those products. So so there are bills and actually I, I think about, yes, all the states I mentioned to create programs that then would promulgate rules for new or updated programs. And, you know, we can get to to it later, but the good news there is there's bipartisan support uh, and truly bipartisan support. In some states, the bills are led by Republicans. In other states, they're led by Democrats. So there's there's resounding support for creating and expanding these programs. And Jeff, 
I'll echo that. But one thing I would love to point out and maybe play a little devil's advocate with you here. One of the reasons that New York's program is so successful is that it's uncapped program. And in so many of these states, it's almost like they're starting with pilot programs or these artificial caps. Jeff and I both live here in Colorado, where it's one of the oldest community solar markets in the country, um, if not the oldest, actually. And we have this RFP process for a specific amount of community solar that comes out a few times a year. And the difference between Colorado and New York, New York has had incentives that have stepped down over time, but they have a mechanism for evaluating the value of the the energy that is coming from a community solar project and where and how it interconnects with the grid. And so developers in New York understand that, yeah, this is the economics of my project now versus my economics of the project three years from now. You know what? It still makes sense for me to, to Uh, explore this development process. Whereas in states that have these artificial caps like Colorado, it's, am I taking a risk to start developing a project because there's this cap? And so I think there's a lot to be done and obviously opening new states. Um, We're really excited about the states that are coming online soon, including Virginia and New Mexico. And we're excited about Hawaii's program as well. But I think that there's a lot to be done in uncapping programs that are existing and do have crediting mechanisms available um, and just making those programs even bigger. About the cost effectiveness, I mean, is it just the tax credit that is the benefit? I mean, obviously, you've got economies of scale that will help with the overall cost uh, as it continues to grow. But where else can you see the benefit to the consumer beyond just the tax credit? So, So it works different in every state. And so generally, though, what you're looking at is you're looking at a value of the credit, the level of the credit delivering value to the system. And that value to the system is equal to or greater than what the standard offer is to the customer. So obviously, once we reach higher levels of scale of the product, you know that may change, but we certainly have a, a significant amount of capacity that we can continue to build at a, at a cost that is lower than perhaps the standard offer that the customer can provide. And so that that delta between those is typically split between the developer and the off-taker or the customer, and they receive some nominal amount of economic savings from, from their subscription. David, you mentioned uh, the tax credit. And back in the day, uh, when residents had to purchase modules that were part of a community solar project, they would get that tax benefit. Um, but this is works much more like a solar PPA for a commercial property, in which the developer or project owner will take those tax incentives um, and any other state incentive that exists. So it's really Pivot Energy owns projects, so we will monetize those tax credits. Um, The resident itself really subscribes to energy. Um, And this is how the vast majority of projects and programs operate now. So what they'll do is they'll get a, a bill credit. And if it's a dual billing system, then they'll also pay an additional um, uh, subscription cost. So let's say the bill credit is 10 cents and the uh, cost to the subscriber is 9 cents. Therefore, there's a delta of this 1 cent. Um, In 
Some states, uh, it makes sense to say, great, just like a traditional PPA, you've got your cost of solar, which is X, and that'll, that'll um, escalate over time. But a lot of programs now uh, have really simplified things for the consumer by saying, we're going to give you a 10% discount to that bill credit, which in a lot of states, the bill credit can be very similar to the cost of the, the full kilowatt hour. Um, that's going to range and vary from state to state. But the states that are most successful are ones where we really can give the value of the full kilowatt hour that they'd be paying. And so that discount feels very tangible to subscribers. So you really say you've got a 10% discount on on your bill, but it's really a 10% discount to that credit. And that's just a, a an example product, but we're seeing that as really the standard offer that when new programs are going out um, and when new developers are entering programs, they're making those economic assumptions of it being this sort of floating rate um, that gives the the subscriber uh, a guaranteed savings, um, but the the financier has to be able to be okay with that risk. Um, so again, it's not like a subscriber itself is going to be saying, okay, well, am I getting a state rebate or am I getting Rex? Am I getting this or am I getting that? We simplify the entire process for the subscriber and they just sign up for either a rate or a bill credit discount. Yeah, thank you, Casey. That's a really good clarification on the consumer end of things. I also want to discuss a little bit about why developers are actually able to deliver those bill credit savings to customers, um, because a lot of the benefits from the policy angle are essentially given to the developer of the project, the owner of the project, and that's what's passed along to the consumer in the form of a bill credit. And we touched on the ITC, the federal ITC, for a moment and what's very interesting about community solar is it's actually the segment of the solar industry least impacted by the ITC. Now, don't get me wrong, I am a fan of the ITC and I would love to see it expanded. However, because it's such a policy-oriented program, a policy-oriented segment, it's most of its credits, most of, of the cost savings and most of the benefit that developers get from building out community solar projects is less so from the tax credits from the ITC and more so from um, state level financing for these programs. Some states have community adders, such as New York, where that helps incentivize building out community solar. So there's a number of different ways that developers can, can get some credits on building out these projects so that it both pencils for them and it's also an affordable way for them to build out this project and pass savings along to consumers that can help mitigate some of that risk and be able to deliver a, a guaranteed 10% savings. And what's really interesting on top of all of this is something that we've seen in in some other programs like residential, but really we're seeing it embraced on the community solar aspect far and above anywhere else is when we create programs, um, we can actually carve out goals for that program and adjust bill credits and other mechanisms like um, first come to be able to get an award or to win that RFP based on the makeup of that community solar project. So uh, we can't talk about community solar without talking about LMI accessibility. Um, so that's low to moderate income household accessibility. Those people who've been traditionally shut out of purchasing solar in, in the past. And so Sometimes programs will come up with 
either general program rules that say, hey, we want X percent of a system to go credits to go to low to moderate income individuals, or they'll say low to moderate income individuals will get an additional bill credit, um, or they'll say, hey, here's a separate RFP. And if you are serving low to moderate income individuals, um, you'll be able to win this award. And different programs have been able to use that as a carrot and stick approach to be able to get developers to service this really underserved uh, class of of residents and businesses. Um, so it also helps them cite projects. It also helps them decide what that community involvement is going to be like. And from a policy perspective, it's much more fluid and based on the the goals of that specific state than I'd say a federal policy has been traditionally. So we can work that out there. And that's really cool. No, I mean, that, that's an interesting distinction and and highlights the complexities around it because you've got the federal ITC credit, but then you've also have really benefits from the state level, which obviously we've got 50 of them. So there's a lot of interrelationships that, that need to occur to help growth of this across the states. Question, Casey, for you, how do these projects get started? Does it typically take an anchor kind of subscriber and then build out from there? Or when does when do you start the process of development? The process of development typically starts as soon as we have a bill passed. Um, there's a lot that happens in the regulatory piece, and that regulatory piece can make or break projects. We're seeing that in Virginia right now, where the regulatory process is deciding what the minimum bill credit is going to be for residents. Um, And so that is going to really shift the economics of a project. It's also going to shift um, what that offtake is going to look like. So really, when a project first gets started or when a program first gets started, the thing we know is, hey, community solar is going to be available in the next two years, and we're going to figure out what it looks like from there. And then every developer and their mother goes and talks to every farmer and their mother um, to find land. And so everyone is grabbing land and starting some of those early interconnection studies. Um, From there, some of the really sophisticated community solar developers as well as CCSA will work together on that regulatory process to make sure that all of this work that everyone is doing on the ground isn't for naught. And so a huge shout out to Jeff and his team for being able to to fight those regulatory pieces you know, really hand-to-hand on the ground. So we're developing those projects really, again, as early as the program is available um, or for more sophisticated or mature programs, really just as soon as we know that we feel like the land is available. Our old um, VP of development used to say that land is the tail that wags the dog. So it's really land because we understand that if you build it, they will come. Uh, Looking nationally, there are statistics that say that even in the most penetrated community solar markets, we've only hit about 6% of the addressable market. And so we know that there will be subscribers to make these projects work. And I think this 
also creates a shift from the traditional commercial solar projects. So commercial solar projects, you have to identify what that off-taker is. You have to say, we have to look at those financials and the equipment is going to be on site. And so it's really important to make sure that that building owner is going to be there for 20 or 30 years. For community solar, the shift becomes less about the eventual off-takers, in this case, the subscribers. And it becomes more on the people who are managing those subscriptions. So Pivot Energy has a service called Sun Central, which is our community solar management platform in which we are recruiting subscribers, we are managing subscribers, we are collecting bill payments, we're answering questions, doing all those pieces. Um, And we do those for ourselves, but we also do it for others. And it's Really, the financiers are digging in to figure out, is Sun Central able to find those subscribers when someone eventually drops out? Either they move out of their service territory, they don't like their subscription anymore, or they don't exist anymore. Um, So it's finding out, is there a service provider? Is there a product that makes sense in the market? Um, And... To, to the finance community's credit, they've really come a long way, whereas they used to try to say, great, I need you to have a creditworthy anchor to be able to make this project work. Now we're seeing 100% residential projects. We're seeing 100% LMI projects. We're seeing a mix of commercial and residential or sometimes all commercial projects. And we understand that there's enough subscribers out there to meet this demand as long as the bill credits work, which is why that hand-to-hand combat in the regulatory space is so necessary. But it's also what gives these developers so much confidence to be able to go out as soon as a bill passes and start talking to landowners um, without having an anchor tenant lined up yet. The Interchange is brought to you by the inaugural Yale Clean Energy Conference happening online April 1st to April 2nd, 2022. This year, the focus is on renewables integration and grid modernization for a clean energy future. Sessions will feature leading clean energy experts and aim to utilize and deepen knowledge of clean energy justice, finance, technology, policy, and careers. Across the world, attention to environmentalism and funneling of resources into clean energy is rising. The number of employment opportunities focused on clean energy is increasing. This conference will feature networking opportunities for job seekers and job creators to connect with one another. Content and career development offerings will appeal to both professionals currently in the field and students pursuing careers in clean energy. A keynote address will be given by Shalanda Baker, Deputy Director for Energy Justice at the U.S. Department of Energy. Other confirmed speakers include David Roberts, Gladys Brown Dutrill, Richard Kaufman, Katie Dykes, and Dan Gross, just to name a few. Explore our agenda, see our speakers, and register at yalecleanenergy.info slash conference before April 1st. This is The Interchange, Recharged. Next question I had was on the financing. Uh, open this to, to Casey and Jeff. I mean, how are you seeing the financing market? I mean, how, how are these projects being funded and developed? Yeah, it's a great question. 
I see the same financiers, the same tax equity players, the same debt players as we've seen in traditional solar markets. Um, a lot coming from the utility scale space, because as we know, there are way too many financiers chasing way too few projects. And so uh, financiers who were typically okay with 100 megawatt projects are now saying, well, maybe it's not so different if we did a 10 megawatt project or if we did a portfolio of projects. And one of the things that I love about community solar, especially under our finance uh, mechanism, is that um, we're seeing that the, the diversity of markets is actually making solar community solar financing more accessible and cheaper. So uh, every market is different. So the value of the credit is going to be different. How the credit is calculated is going to be different. What the offtake requirements are, all of those things are very, very different. And we're starting to see these portfolios of projects like Pivot has one right now that has multiple states involved. And it's actually more attractive to tax equity and traditional equity um, investment because there's there's so many things that can go right and wrong and that alleviates a lot of that risk we can kind of put it all in one big bucket and i think that we're going to start to see the really good financiers the really good asset owners are going to be doing more than just new york projects they're going to be doing new york projects with a bunch of new jersey involved with some massachusetts in there um because all of those programs are slightly different and have very different offtake structures. And so that's really, really exciting. That coupled with financiers originally tried very hard to make a community solar project the same terms as a commercial solar project. So they were asking for residential FICO scores. They were asking for underwriting documents for um, the anchors, we're still seeing that for anchors. We're still seeing, hey, if you're going to take 60% of this project, I need to make sure you're going to be there for the long run because losing 60% of your project in one fell swoop could be really challenging or 40%. But on the residential side, we're seeing this push away from trying to get credit from any one subscriber and then thinking, is this product enough that if subscriber A doesn't pay their bill, we can replace them easily with subscriber B, C, D, etc. So that's been a big change that has really happened and has accelerated over the last maybe three years. But my guess is for the future of community solar, we're going to see sophisticated asset owners that understand a lot of different markets and can convey those structures to the uh, the finance community to understand what that true risk is. And that risk is that the product is sustainable and that there's a market for such product. Yeah, I think that speaks to the adoption of the energy transition in general. I mean, you've got financing providers that are getting more comfortable with it staying, but also being sophisticated enough to operate across different states that have very unique programs that, in terms of the economics around the project. But given the fact that that's probably where it's going, and just given everybody's interest in the energy transition from a financing standpoint, because all the different areas that we've had on this podcast have said very similar things. The funding is there. The interest is growing. They're getting more comfortable financing the space. And I think you're just going to continue to see that 
that go. Jeff, sorry, I think you had something to... I was just going to say, in brief, and we've had a decade plus of experience and financiers have had a decade plus of experience uh, and four gigawatts of projects. And so I, I certainly see with the new capital that comes into the space through our membership uh, or, the, or the funders backing our membership or our members that are owner operators, that there's more and more comfort. And the simple example just being that, I mean, look at the Fortune 500 25 years ago, look at it today, and you may see a lot of different companies then to today. And so if you're thinking about a project with one off taker versus multiple off takers, it's far easier to sub in uh, new subscribers than have one off taker for an entire project. So I, I certainly think we're seeing uh, far more comfort, and we're even seeing far more comfort with supporting projects that have higher penetrations of low to moderate income customers. And part of that, I think, is thanks to some innovations in billing. So we're starting to see uh, utility consolidated billing in markets like New York um, and in Oregon. And we're starting to see platforms that provide a consolidated bill from the provider, from the manager directly. So I think that's going to be a really big piece to getting the cost of community solar to come way down. So right now you've got two bills, right? You've got your bill from the utility and if you don't pay that, your lights go out. So that's the reason that utility bills get paid. You want to keep your lights on. But then you get a second bill from a community solar subscriber and that bill maybe you don't realize that you have a second bill. Maybe you're confused. Maybe this month you just saw all those savings and forgot about this second bill. Um, and it's not a super great experience for the subscriber. And I think everyone recognizes that. But the question and the big debate around community solar right now is, should the utility be providing a what we call a consolidated bill. So they'll be giving credits for the system for the kilowatt hours that are produced. And then they'll be reducing that by the money that is paid to the asset owner. And instead of trying to have the asset owner chase money from the subscriber, they're actually getting it straight from the project. And so, you know, if the system produces 100 kilowatt hours of electricity, the developer or the asset owner, whoever is managing that project long term, will get that uh, that 100 kilowatt hour credit and, and get paid for it. And then it's the utility's job to chase all these people for that payment because they're used to doing it. Um, the reason that it's a little bit controversial right now is it's a question of who owns that relationship between the subscriber and the project. Traditionally, utilities have been a bit... I'd say adversarial, maybe that's too strong of a word, uh, to solar developers and solar policy nationally. And um, we've seen programs like in Oregon, where the first time that they tried to do consolidated billing, the utilities were asking for enormous amounts of funds to be able to manage that process. And it really stunted the program there. Um, but we're seeing in New York where, you know, developers, the developer community and 
um, the utilities got together and came up with a more reasonable fee for providing that service. And in either case, having one single bill reduces the risk of a subscriber not paying because we're back to, if you don't pay, you turn off your lights. And so that's a heck of a collateral. So it's really going to be in this next uh, evolution in community solar financing is is it the providers that are providing one single bill and then you have to deal with the credit offtake of that provider? Or is it the utility that's going to be providing that single bill? And, you know, are we backstopping from the utility? So those two things are are really exciting for the next few years in community solar finance um, as these programs continue to evolve. It comes down to counterparty risk at that point, the financing of counterparty risk. Yes. That's a much more eloquent way of saying it. <laughs> Jeff, how do you see the competition in the community solar market um, in terms of number of players? And do you see it expanding kind of along the lines that Casey was saying that maybe you've got consolidation where you have a number of players that operate you know, across the U.S. and not necessarily regionally focused, just overall the competitive environment you see for community solar? It's really exciting, David. Uh, I think state by state, it, it looks different, but you have a healthy mix of local players that are operating either in one or two markets within a region. And then you've got a cross-section of national players. Uh, if you look at CCSA's leadership members and our general membership, you'll see that sort of cross-section uh, within. And then we partner with some uh, local associations, state-level associations, where you can see an even broader cross-section. But, but I'd say it's healthy, and that's one of the benefits, really, that Community Solar is offering. It's offering that competitive... Uh, uh, environment in traditionally and non-competitive space. Uh, and, and I think that's where you're seeing the innovation of the product come to life. And it's really important to note that that innovation works two ways. It works both to a customer-facing perspective. So, hey, what is what is my customer experience with this product? And it's good that there's competition because you want better and better experiences for customers. But then you also have a competitive environment um, for grid-enabling programs and products, which is really exciting. So you look at some of these more forward-looking programs like New York that's able to really target their bill credits and their project selection and program uh, project selection towards the sort of attributes they're looking for, whether it's pairing with storage and providing uh, longer duration um uh, production throughout the day to the customers that it serves to the location of the project itself. These are all pieces of that sort of competitive landscape that play out both on the grid and within the customer experience. If I'm a if I'm a solar developer, what is my decision process from selling the solar power into a utility versus going the community solar route? There's a bit of a difference between the size of community solar projects versus utility projects, but I think it's also just looking at the revenue streams. Community solar can be a much more attractive option for developers. Um, a company might choose to develop community solar projects due to the financial returns of having many retail subscribers rather than one large utility scale project with a single power purchase agreement in which the utility is sort of setting the terms so for example, with a utility PPA, a developer might be getting around three or four cents a kilowatt hour. Whereas with a community solar project, 
that would be bringing in retail rates and retail rates can be for residential customers around 12 cents per kilowatt hour. And again, these programs do typically thrive when a state develops policy that enables a community solar program to actually be valued properly. But just looking at the benefits of being able to have multiple retail subscribers to your project rather than a single PPA with the utility can really open the doors for revenue streams for developers. Not much to add. Uh, Rachel covered it well, but but it's important to note the distinction, both in size and composition of the project. So you're talking about one to five to maybe 10 megawatts if you're looking more to the west uh, size projects. And these are projects that fit uh, on the distribution system. So somewhere largely below the 69 kV bus. Uh, so so you, you are you're dealing with fundamentally different projects than a utility scale project for a developer that offer fundamentally different benefits both to a customer as an off-taker, but also the grid itself as it's located on the distribution system. So that that sort of compensation that Rachel alluded to is really comparing apples and oranges, which is a really, I think, important distinction to note because oftentimes there can be this discussion around, oh, why am I paying 12 cents a kilowatt hour versus three cents? Why wouldn't we just build all three cents, right? That's that's intuitively a good question to ask, right? But you're not comparing apples to apples. You're talking about a portfolio of resources that offer different benefits. Our modeling showed that. You have some resources that cost, quote unquote, more per kilowatt in generation to produce than, say, a utility scale project, but they're equally necessary within the portfolio of resources based on transmission costs, distribution costs, grid resilience, benefit reliability, uh, to offer the best experience and the lowest cost, most reliable product to a customer. Well, I think that's just about all the time we have. But, you know, Jeff, you were talking about the interconnection issues, which I know that we've mentioned throughout this podcast and the need for enhancements and improvements to the grid. I mean, we had an episode uh, a while back just on the grid enhancing technologies, and uh, we, we could spend months covering the complexities around that. So so clear that that needs to be done. But one of the things that's always come out of these podcasts is the need for more information Uh, out to the market and the public to help drive these forward, because there's a lot going on uh, that that people should be behind that maybe they're just not aware of. And I think community solar is probably one of those. We've seen, obviously, a lot of growth, uh, a lot more to be expected. But I guess my my, my last question to you is, what what can people do to kind of help further this? You know, I mean, if you were to look 10 years in the future, where do you see community solar and how can people get more involved, particularly given the fact that there's differences across state lines? Dude, that's a great question. Uh, the $64 million one. Um, I would say generally, I mean, for customers themselves, they can call their legislators and say, I want access to community solar and I don't have it uh, as that's the, the sort of first line of defense uh, is ensuring that there's policy in place. Uh, and, and that that's that's sort of the, the beginning of the process. And I think more and more customers are doing that. If I were to look 10 years into the future, I, I would see an ecosystem within the distribution system that Thomas Edison would be very surprised uh, to, to see that all of a sudden that electricity outlet that goes one way where it sucks energy out is pushing energy 
back in, in most homes and throughout the distribution system. So the distribution system is fundamentally changed to where you have load management within the house, you have potentially storage on site or located within the distribution system that can be dispatched, or whether it's the vehicle that's it's charging and sending back into the grid. You have community solar projects that are providing access to solar and those benefits for the a large amount of customers that don't have access to those facilities. Now, since you have a, a point of interconnection, you could probably put storage on the old projects or new projects going forward, all communicating up with a transmission system that now doesn't have to be overbuilt, right? We can build a transmission <laughs> system that isn't 10 times the size that's necessary for 2% of the year that it's needed. So it can be far more efficient, far cleaner, far more democratic, and community solar is going to play a key role as a central hub alongside other distributed technologies and products. I believe in Jeff's future. <laughs> Let's go. Pretty exciting. <laughs> so, so Casey, what can we see, you know, over the next couple of years uh, for Pivot? Just so much growth. Um, we got acquired by ECP this past summer, and that's when we officially became an owner-operator of projects. And I'm really excited because Pivot is vertically integrated where we have our own community solar management platform. Um, and now that we have our own financing, we can actually determine what that project, what that product is. For subscribers and what subscribers were going after and different uh, creativity within what we're offering to the market. Traditionally, it's been we might suggest a product and then a financier says yay or nay, this works for my, my returns or it doesn't, or this person is okay to be put in my project or not. But now that we have that ability to say yes, we own this subscriber relationship and we also own the financing from this project, we can make community solar much more efficient. And Pivot is in a very, very prized position to be able to do that because we know so much about the subscriber relationship. We know so much about how to engage a subscriber or a, someone who's not a subscriber yet. And we're taking those risks on replacing those subscribers. So we can start to evaluate projects in a much more creative and dynamic way than the market had been doing before. So I'm really excited to see how we continue to evolve the community solar product, how we, we continue to evolve the community solar experience, and how we continue to expand in states nationwide and continue the penetration within these states uh, that we are, are have been seeing. I mentioned that Jeff and I started in a co-working space together when I was working at Pivot, and he was just starting CCSA six years ago, something like that. Um, and at that point, Pivot wasn't even doing community solar. We were mostly focused on behind-the-meter projects. And the fact that we have really doubled down and gotten into community solar, know every aspect of the financing uh, and product and subscriber landscape has just changed our company fundamentally and allowed us to live our mission, which is providing solar and providing distributed resources to the grid to create the most benefit. That has been a changer. And I think it's going to change the industry altogether. Rachel, any final thoughts? Yes, I am thrilled that we're having these conversations 
I came to Woodmax Solar Team because community solar needed an analyst. This this sector is is just growing rapidly. It's going to be playing an ever-increasing role in distributed generation. And there's a lot to be paying attention to, a lot of policy dynamics, and a lot of bills to be be following right now. I think there's a lot of promise in what we have going on in a number of states as these bills move through their legislatures. And I'm just very much looking forward to seeing how our forecasts are able to change and shift and grow as more programs come on the books. And I'm excited to see how that all plays out. I think it's definitely going to be important for us to address and figure out how to deal with these interconnection challenges that we've spent some time on and also make sure that consumers, customers, and subscribers have the best experience possible. Those are the things that are going to be key to making sure that this sector is able to thrive and play the key role that we all are are hoping that it will. Lots to be done. We're hoping to see DOE put some muscle behind uh, their goals as well. And I'm just hoping that as we watch the community solar market grow and expand in various states, that we can also see how the grid can also change with that and and become more resilient uh, with all the upgrades that are developed as we as we build out community solar. Well, thank you guys for a uh, a very interesting discussion. Uh, it's been great. So thanks again to to Casey from Pivot Energy, Jeff from the CCSA, and Rachel from Woodmac. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. Community solar makes economic and environmental sense. There's huge growth potential for the model, but as we heard, there are hurdles to jump to get to a state of mass adoption. The goals for the next decade are ambitious, but achievable. There are four gigawatts of community solar installed across the country as of December 21, and four and a half more gigawatts in the pipeline in the next five, an increase of 9% over last year's projections. The industry recently committed to developing 20 gigawatts of community solar capacity by 2025 to enable enough community solar to power 5 million American homes by 2025. This has been The Interchange Recharged, and I'm David Van Miller. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye for now.